Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I am joined by Amber McZeal, and we talk about decolonizing the psyche. An auntie once told me a story. She said, people who live by the river and fish have songs about fishing and eating fish and swimming in rivers. They have clothes that reflect the stories of the river and the fish. They might have hairstyles and dance styles that reflect that which they live around and that which sustains them. And that's what we call culture. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions, and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic life navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences 
as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now. Amber McZeal is a writer, vocalist, sacred scholar, and activist who utilizes sound therapy and guided somatic imagery to engage the knowledge of the body. Her goal is to end oppression and create more humane social relationships. Her practice weaves together somatic therapy, social justice, and spirituality. She holds a bachelor's degree in sound therapy and trauma studies a master's in somatic depth psychology, and a PhD in community, liberation, indigenous, and ecological depth psychology. Light a candle, and let's welcome Amber McSeal. Amber, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I first heard you speak um, on Corinne's um, my grandmother's hand study group. And, you know, I'm, I'm very somaticized by now. And so I, I could really feel in my body what you were saying and what you were talking about, even though I don't remember all the words. Like I wrote down things that really hit me, but I could feel this wisdom. I could feel this confidence. I could feel this, just this truth. And I thought, I really want to speak with her and learn much more about decolonizing the psyche because just the title is so so clear to me but i don't know if it's my if my clarity is actually what you mean by it what seems i should say what i appear what, what appears to be clear to me it may not be your your interpretation so i just wanted to start with that like what do you mean when you say decolonizing the psyche mm-hmm. oh well first thank you so much for that warm reflection and um for just sharing with me how how my truths land, how it landed with you that day. Um, so mm-hmm. everything I like to do in life these days is is, uh, is a, a bit holistic. So I'll start with the story of how I, I came into decolonizing the psyche. It definitely was an emergent um, process. And it emerged from a tension, uh, that, that tension I, I spoke about during the My Grandmother's Hands opening session. And it was related to the Eurocentrism in the somatics program at my institute. And so I was pursuing the master's in somatic um, depth psychologies and um, did not see myself as a black racialized woman reflected in the literature. So it left me, um, it left me with a deep hunger, a deep uh, void around how do I cultivate and and practice language and voice um, related to this idea of somatic sensibility, embodiment, and uh, racialization. So I began with the, the, the sort of spark of the idea came decolonizing the psyche, psyche meaning soul, Um, psyche, the Greek word, uh, there's also a comedic word that some theorists and scholars say psyche, the Greek word came from, which is suke. The comedic word suke um, also means soul. So um, I started this, 
online social media Facebook group, Decolonizing the Psyche, as kind of my um, support system to practice voice um, along with others in community, to practice voicing this intersection between somatic sensibility, um, racial identity, and, and cultural trauma healing. So that's the, that's the basis for it. What it's come to be, as I've, I've deepened my intimacy with this idea of what decolonial is, what is decolonial? You know, we hear it thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, we start with, you know, uh, accepting that we live in a, in, in a colonial project. We still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that colonial project um, involved a strategy, a strategy of determining values and creating devalue. That strategy was uh, refined over time through culture, through media, through policy, through, um, through uh, food, through social organization, through redlining, through housing policies and things like that, right? So um, in that same vein, it, it, the way I see it in my mind's eye, it's, it's how the colonial project and its um, sort of tenets and mission crystallizes into the body. And so the idea of decolonizing the psyche is how we tend that intersection of crystallization. How do I first bring awareness using a somatic sensibility slowly, right? Mindfully. How do I bring awareness to a relational pattern that's wholly, wholly informed by an oppressive logic or a colonial logic? How do I bring awareness to that? How do I then see it in my body and in my actions? And then how do I undo it? Mm. So I would say at the base of it, what, what is fundamental to decolonizing the psyche is um, decolonial death rituals. Mm. What am I allowing to die? What have I inherited by being born into this racialized construct? Um, what have I inherit, inherited about how I feel? about myself or others, and then can I consciously let that die? That's kind of what it is. When you said about the death ritual, my heart got so full. You know, it's so beautiful, actually. Um, And also when you said that and you were were saying, you know, what what that I've internalized about myself will I let die? I'm I'm hearing how this work is for every race. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I'm going to, so the answer to the question is yes, but I'm going to invite us to use the word ethnicity. Um, it's, it is for every ethnicity, every group identity to recognize how they have been racialized. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm making that distinction because the how of our racialization is still ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's relatively naturalized. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, of course you're white. Right. Of course mm-hmm. you're, you're black. Um, everybody knows it. God knows it. God made you this way. It's, you know, it's so mm-hmm. unquestioned. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's for everyone who lives within a racialized social construct because mm-hmm. the reins of oppression and racialization touch all of our heads. 
that that's what was powerful about that. Um, and these are some things I wrote down that I had heard you say that really hit me. Um, you said it in ways I felt it most of my life, but didn't have words. And the first one was race as mythology for division. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's that's just like it chills even when I say it back right now because when you're talking about ethnicity versus race, culture versus race, I even think of like pagans, like the land versus race. Mm-hmm. Um, race really is a construct. It's it's mm-hmm. not in the natural world. And I, I want you to explain that to me more because I get it somatically, but I want to understand it intellectually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 logic of race has crystallized into the body mm-hmm. um, over eight centuries. This is an eight century old project. Um, I, I seat myself within an archetypal landscape. I like to lean into archetypes mm-hmm. and sort of see the passion play between the archetypes. Um, and within archetype is the mythos. So race is our mythos. Race is our our big story. Um, and it is a story that is... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm attempting to be kind. But I'll just be, <laughs> you can be deep here. You can be I'll as deep as you want to be. Here. <laughs> Politically, whatever you need to do, you go there. Uh-huh. It is a... It's a myth. Uh, it's, it's a myth designed specifically to create division and hierarchy for the purpose of wealth, mm-hmm. uh, wealth concentration. And when you see, when you start to trace the evolution of this myth from the 1492 first contact with Native peoples, this land, to uh, 1619 Africans and indentured Irish uh, peasants, right, indentured mm-hmm. servants, um, to uh, 1672, Bacon's Rebellion, um, the first almost successful rebellion between Irish indentured servants and African indentured servants against very wealthy European aristocrats. Um, that ally, that uh, allyship almost defeated the very small number of really, really wealthy European folks. And once Bacon's Rebellion ended, because uh, uh, Bacon died of dysentery, just tragically. So it ended, and when the aristocrats returned, they said, we have to devise some strategy, some myth, to never allow this to happen again. Mm -hmm. And so after 1672 is when you see... uh, the first time race is used in um, official documents, Mm. in a policy. Mm. Um, And when you look behind the story, so we're looking at the bones of the story, when you start to look a a bit deeper, you see that it's a strategy meant to confuse people. Mm -hmm. It's a strategy meant to uh, disrupt relationship, period. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a strategy also meant to offer the illusion of superiority because the, the trade-off was the Irish indentured peasants who had to sell their labor in order to come to America, right? Um, they got to be white, um, in, in, in exchange for the opportunity to be wealthy, as Mm -hmm. wealthy as the aristocrats, right? Mm -hmm. 
So it's the illusion of power. It's the illusion of superiority. It's the illusion that they're escaping what they were escaping in Europe, the Crusades, mm-hmm. uh, serfdom, lack of upward mobility, deprivation, hunger, right? The plague. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the illusion of, of comfort, mm-hmm. right? So that's why I call it uh, race is a, a, a brilliant mythology, brilliant of division. Now, it's a construct with teeth. The reason this mythology is successful is because it's backed with terror and violence. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that implicates the body. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I want to go a little back to when you were just saying about, you know, you could trade in I mean this is how I heard it. You can trade in your your European or your Irishness, whatever it is, for white. And then you were able to align yourself with, you know, the side that was more dominant, correct? Or safer financially? Mm. Well, um, it's a series of laws. It, it would, I would encourage or offer the invitation um, to folks who are taking this story in for the first time to do some deeper research because there were, there, the laws that were in place said, if you can get to America, you will get 50 acres. Right. Right. Um, essentially, if you could buy a ticket and then the more tickets you buy, the more land you could get. So what happened at Bacon's Rebellion was, one, the invention of the myth of race, two, the um, elimination of that law that allowed peasants to accumulate land. Mm. They no longer got that. Mm-hmm. And the, what they did receive was this illusion of whiteness as superior to black. Mm. So instead of the upward mobility, quote unquote, and the land acquisition, um, which was a part of the first uh, uh, temptation, bringing them over here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of that, you've got category of white as racial designation within a power structure. Wow. So they they were really fooled. Holy. And completely, and still are. Still are, uh, correct, correct. Uh-huh. I'll circle it back to why um, Mr. 45 was so successful, because the descendants of those same people, or I guess what, what we could call a sort of a parallel um, social location, poor to middle class, mostly low income to poor white people mm-hmm. who are in the Midwest, right? And... Who, what, what did our beloved Miss Clinton call them? She, she slipped up and she was on mic and she called them deplorables. Mm. All right. There's a book by a historian, white historian out of um, Louisiana, my birth state. Her name is Nancy Eisenberg. And she wrote a book called White Trash, mm. a 400 year untold history of class in America. And so the class tension gets hyper, hyper concentrated, hyper um, crystallized when you look at it within the European white racialization project. Mm-hmm. Fast forward it to 1970s Black Panther by the name of Fred Hampton, who, um, you know, this is the origins of the Poor People's Campaign as we know it today. So. 
Fred Hampton went from Chicago with the tenets of the Black Panther Party to eradicate poverty. And he, he went from Chicago to Appalachia. And he hosted a series of events telling these poor coal miner uh, communities, right? Mm-hmm. Uneducated, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, this is our plight in the urban North. This is what we're dealing with. This is how we're disenfranchised. This is da, 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 da. And these poor white Appalachian folks said, you know what? I might not have liked you before, but I sure can't disagree with what you're telling me. Mm-hmm. They started to see that their, um, their challenges were actually aligned. Mm-hmm. And it was not shortly after that that Mr. Hampton was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Amazing. You see? Absolutely. So there was the threat of suturing this division that the racial mythology has kept in place. And that mm-hmm. was too great a risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because when you when you talk about it, and I was saying it's it's for all ethnicity. Ethnicities, I imagine, each one has a different um, internalization to decolonize from their psyche based on how they've been treated or what, which, which side they're on. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And they also, they have, um, each, each person, each group's uh, internalization will be nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can say that what I've noticed in this year of COVID and um, increased racial awareness and racial Mm -hmm. healing in the country Mm -hmm. is that our learning curve as a collective human family is to um, sort of catch up our white racialized brothers and sisters um, on this project. Mm -hmm. They're behind. as opposed to black racialized or any, you know, of the other people put at a margin, um, they are constantly, constantly coming face, coming face to face with their racialization mm-hmm. and the pressures mm-hmm. of it. They have a hyper vigilant awareness of race, mm-hmm. right? Um, so they're holding more. And if we're, we're going to try and transform an ill that affects everyone, then we need everyone to be informed about where they are positioned in the relationship. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's a lot of how I, I speak about this in decolonizing the psyche. Healing this cultural trauma is relational work. Mm-hmm. White doesn't exist without black mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and vice versa. I really love that. Um, I love that, that just that, that phrase, cultural trauma, healing cultural trauma is relational work. Because like you said, um, you know, cultural trauma on the grand scale is really relational trauma. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have that, um, I'm imagining, you know, when I think of, I do a lot of developmental work with with people and their children and parenting them somatically. And I think of the term Mm co-regulator. And I just think of, you know, we've somaticized in our bodies, um, and like you said, it's so nuanced. So I have a very, very mixed audience. So you're all going to hear this differently. And I appreciate that. But uh, from the work that I'm doing, the, the interviews I've had, the, the triad groups, my, my clients, everything I'm learning from everybody around this work of essentially decolonizing our psyches, which I, I really prefer your, 
your terminology with that. What I'm learning is, let me think a minute, because there's so much there, right? In the body, like when I say co-regulator, the body has been, oh my goodness, has endured so many centuries of essentially a fight or flight response around the other culture. Mm-hmm. And what what interests me about somatically healing racism more than any other any other form is you say something about bodies being of knowledge, like bodies mm-hmm. are where we hold our knowledge. Um, and I, I really agree with that because when I think of the the Europeans and I think of that almost like I call it the original white flight from Europe because of all the, the, the Middle Ages and the torture and what was happening there into this other country. And that, that flight response being in the DNA from that continent and then getting projected onto other, other ethnic ethnicities, specifically people of color. And so when I work with people... I keep noticing that in their body, even though their minds are very loving and open, the body has a constricted flight response to the other. And I'm doing quotes right now. And so when I hear you say this, and I hear you say it's nuanced, I guess my my long-winded way, what I'm getting at, I'm feeling my way through this, is really in your body noticing how it feels to internalize these mythological, these mythologies of race, onto yourself and how it feels in your body to see the other race as as other i mean isn't that really the work we're doing yeah yeah and you know in this and we're just at the beginning of this work in many 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 ways um i mean when we think of the timeline just of, of of racial terror Right, mm-hmm. um, we're we're just getting the space and the breath, and you, you you're aware of this with trauma work. Um, you start getting into the healing and integration of your mm-hmm. trauma when you have a, a sense of safety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? When you have a sense of of grounding, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be forever, but it it does need to be established. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would I would agree one hundred percent racialization the way I see it, racialization is normalized dysregulation. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, Resma Menikam's book talks about trauma unmetabolized becomes personality. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. Right. And we could take it just a step further into the larger ecosphere and say this cultural, cultural trauma unmetabolized has become our racial ideologies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna slow mm-hmm. down and write that down. Mm-hmm. Okay, cultural trauma, unmetabolized, uh, becomes racial identity. So the just as you described, the unmetabolized trauma of the Middle Ages in Europe evolved into the racial category of whiteness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about cultural healing or healing from racial trauma, that's the, the Pandora box we are unhinging. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I believe strongly, deep in my gut, that it's why we're seeing, among other compounded issues, but it's why we're seeing this rise in white nationalism, Tiki Torch Brothers, right? Mm-hmm. At the pro- protest a couple years back, um, the young fellow who went to the Black Lives Matter with the AK with the uh, assault rifle, seventeen mm-hmm. year old, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it it induces a sense of terror. That's right. Right. That's right. That that's why it feels so so right to me that it has to be somatically aligned. That's right. Because there's no way to. You know, and I know you know this from doing somatic work, you can you can really think you know yourself and what you think you like and what you think you believe in. And then you go to your body and it's a whole other reality. That's right. And, right. And so that that sense of terror that you describe that would send someone to a rally in violence. It's the it's the same little ember of terror that would cause a white, you know liberal who is not racist to their mind to clench if a black man gets on the train. And to me, it's like those little embers are what I'm so interested in, in feeling and, and, and working with. And mm-hmm. I turn to you right now as, as um, the teacher in this episode of, you know, how does one kind of from the culture I just spoke about white or white passing who, who has a, a situation where there are those little embers, there's that little constriction just from growing up with the, the five o'clock news in America. Mm-hmm. Where do they begin? Like what, what's your, what's your, um, what's your uh, advice for them, for us? Hmm. You know, I, um, this is another reason I value Resmo's book because a part of what decolonial asserts as well is as soon as the colonial project started, decolonial resistance started too. Mm-hmm. And what his book really chronicles was how, um, without conscious awareness, his elders, his grandmother, um, was engaging the polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. She was rocking. She was singing. She was um, inducing a sense of calm and safety amidst horrific conditions, mm-hmm. right? So I, I would start, you know, in, in the sense of start in small places. Start with the small embers of safety and comfort and integration that that one has witnessed. It doesn't have to be completely perfect. Abandon the the sense of perfection. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be, oh, well, grandmother did this, but she didn't have a critical race analysis. So what? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, So celebrate the small wins. Celebrate where we can begin to tap into um, witnessing witnessing the resiliency and the healing and the alchemizing mm-hmm. that has already happened in order for us to even be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you bring more awareness to that, what you focus on will grow. It will create the sort of um, fortification, psychic somatic fortification you need to address these much larger embers Right, that we That's have right. burning in the collective. 
That's right, because what you're really talking about when you say those small embers of safety and going from there, you're really talking about building the capacity. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. right, because as we're building that capacity within us and our nervous systems and the actual container of our diaphragm to mm-hmm. to witness the the realities of other ethnicities we share this country with, as well as the realities of our body and what's programmed, we need the capacity for that. Or else that's when we go into these unconscious narcissistic defense strategies and then we can't really get anywhere and we start fawning or you know Mm -hmm. what's that term that's going around now Um, performative allyship it's like Mm -hmm. all that starts coming up out of out of another the way you said terror really because you don't want to be outed so yeah it's, it's this feeling of well it's not about being outed it's about the way i see it at least not about being outed it's about building that capacity so you can courageously go in there and deal with these parts of yourself that you would never want to believe existed. That's right. So, you know, uh, another dimension of decolonizing the psyche is just what you said about, I don't want to be outed. Mm-hmm. There is so much packed into that um, reaction, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There is the sense of urgency that we have to fix this now. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to mm-hmm. assume the position of a white, a white identified person. Mm-hmm. I have to fix it now because we messed it up. Mm-hmm. There's guilt, there's shame. Um, there's, there's so much wrapped into um, decolonizing the psyche would say, even my reorientation to how I'm perceiving this journey mm. is decolonizing the psyche. Mm. I love that. It, it means I, suspending urgency is me decolonizing the psyche. Why? Because urgency is really rooted in a capitalist, for-profit-driven, exploitative economy. Mm. Right? I'm so glad you just said that. Um, because I think that's really important just to hear. I just want everyone to hear that. I want to slow that down. Mm-hmm. Because it's like the way, the way that a lot of white bodied or white identifying people have taken to trying to heal. This racism is exactly what you just said. It's a sense of guilt and panic and we have to like clean this up. And, and that's such, um, that's such the, le- the lens of the colonizers. You know, I just imagine them coming and we need to clean this up. This is too wild. You know, it's like I identify as a witch and I come from a Puerto Rican background. So mm-hmm. it's, I feel that same that same energy in the witch hunts and in mm. that um, lineage of earth pagan people from all around the world, tribal mm. people, whoever is closer to the earth, there's something terrifying about that to someone that likes, you know, control, right? Because you're so instantly connected to source. So when you I'm just throwing all that at you right now because when you said about the capitalism, and, and the, the panicking, the rushing, how that is colonizing. I, I think it's brilliant. I would like you to, if you would, go a little deeper about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the colonial project also marginalized the earth. Um, so in colonial, decolonial theory is what they call it, which mainly emerges out of the global south, mm-hmm. um, South America, Africa, the Caribbean. Um, there's something called the colonial matrix of power. And 
there's a diagram, a center periphery diagram that I just fell in love with. And, you know, this is a new model to say the same thing, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. Right. But it helped me. Something clicked. Mm -hmm. And what the what the model did was it showed, okay, this in order for this to be centered, I must push to margin or push into shadow this other thing. Mm -hmm. So the value system says what's centered is everything male. So then what's othered is everything gendered female. Mm. What's centered is everything dealing with, quote unquote, intellect in that Cartesian split of mind over body, right? Mm -hmm. So mind is in center, body goes to margin. Mm. Um, uh, Sort of civilization is center, especially institutions and academia and Mm -hmm. producing knowledge in a particular way. Um, the earth itself is put at the margin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? People who work with their minds are at the center. People who work with their hands are at the margin. So mm-hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. There was, um, and, and, and then subsequently, anyone who deviates from center will get scapegoated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the form of genocide, witch hunt, etc. The, the justification and all of this logic, all of the value systems, all of the people who got up on stages in town squares and gave powerful oratories to mm-hmm. shift the masses and shift the way people felt about things. Our entire concept of manifest destiny is a whole mythos about how the earth is void and without form and desperately needs us humans mm-hmm. to come and fix it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it is everything you just said is embedded in um, when you start to slow down and look at the history and look at the thing, the actions that took place in order mm-hmm. to see these psychic um, pillars mm-hmm. that became somatic patterns. You know, it's, it's really validating because when I was in my triad the other week with the my grandmother's hand study group, which I'll talk about at the end of the show for everyone listening. Um, one thing that came up that was really interesting to us, and I wanted to, to get your take on it, but you just actually gave it a pretty good, a good take on it, was how there's this trend happening. Maybe it started in the 70s. I don't know. I'm not a good historian. But there's this trend happening where it, when you said about um, mind being in the center and body being pushed to the side, which makes so much sense. I mean, I, my mind goes right to products, even like deodorant, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to pretend we don't even have a smell anymore. So it, it's like, <laughs> right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's like really that deep. Right. And so uh-huh. it, what interests me is I was t- talking to the triad about how, when someone, let's say middle class or even upper class, um, especially let's say white, but I, I rather keep it class, but let's see. Uh, mm-hmm. When they decide, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to leave all this behind. I'm going to go and I'm going to like farm my food, right? Like I'm going to go live off the land. There's like documentaries about it, and it's 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 like heroic. Um, mm-hmm. And when there's this uh, a person who works the land who has no other choice, like a poor farmer, uh, an immigrant, let's say, no other choice, it doesn't have that same heroic quality. Um, there isn't that same admiration. And 
I was just, I was just so curious about that um, because I hear in that the, the the shift in perception there is this person's choosing to do it. You know, they they have a mind. They're choosing to do this. How amazing for them to go to the earth is so heroic and scary, versus oh those those you know those poor people or those uncivilized people. And I don't know where I'm going with that. I just know it came up in my body and mind as you were talking. So I didn't know if you had anything to add to that that'd be more, um, um, mm. just more eloquent than how I'm putting it. Well, yeah, I can I can certainly add my piece to it. Something that's been sitting on my heart, um, especially this year, is uh, how deeply, deeply involved in the green movement, um, radical white, white right-wing Republicans are, Mm. like borderline neo-Nazi. They're heavily involved in um, biohacking, right? Which is essentially, let me take all the wisdom from the plants and, you know, get it down to a science and then pummel it down my throat (laughs) you know (laughs) right fast and then see if i can sell it you know um so what i what i chalk this up to is it's it's not is it good and 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 righteous to want to return to deep relationship with the land and remember that a french fry comes from a potato absolutely Mm -hmm. does it have a tinge of uh um, appropriation and, and Eurocentrism. Yeah, mm-hmm, it does. Mm-hmm. Does it have a tinge of superiority? Like this is the way to do earth and the way those people are doing it in the global South is not the way to do earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there a superiority complex at play when you see a lot of young, um, I, you know, well-intended white folks, come in and say as if they discovered living with the earth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a bit of that. Mm -hmm. So a little Columbusing, a little bit of Columbusing. And and I I put on my compassion hat because in one regard, you're talking about an a thousand, a 1000 year old gap. That is what some, um, one of my spiritual teachers, uh, around ancestral healing as cultural repair. Um, He gives a timeline of about 800 to 1,000 years since European people were practicing earth-centered religious practices. Wow. I've Mm -hmm. I've always wondered that. Yeah. Because I always think, why? what what is it about this part of the, the earth where they started not considering the earth like how what is just so strange to me um and i've always wondered how 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 far back did that go it's about a millennia amazing amazing Mm -hmm. so what we call that what i call it within this framework of decolonizing the psyche is we've got to look at the cultural wound of intraracial colonization in europe Mm -hmm. of how without the introduction of any um contrast in skin or anything Mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. How did the xenophobic agenda uh, um, take root? How did uh, domination and oppression as um, the the social mandate uh, occur? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did one group of people sever their relationships within another group of people to the land? 
I think it's really, you know, that's, it's something I, I, um, it's something I think about very often, again, being a very earth centered person. Mm -hmm. I always think of, um, you know, when you were talking earlier about the terror that drives someone to assault someone or or go to a rally or, you know, a police Mm -hmm. officer to shoot someone, the same thing. Uh, I think of the terror that is in someone around connecting to the earth. That's so interesting to me. Um, Mm -hmm because we come from the earth or maybe we don't, but it's, it's kind of like, that's a, that's a whole other discussion, but it's kind of like, you know, I wonder where did, where it's almost like, um, it's almost like a strange computer shortage, like something short circuited rather to make you think that there is something scary about the land. Um, and of course, you know, you get into misogyny with that because then we go to the, the earth mother. But I, I mean, I, we have like 10 minutes and there's so much mm-hmm. I want to ask you. I'm not going to be able to. Um, so I'm not even going to try. But the next thing that came up for me when you were talking was a quote I had written down that you said, which is humans have the same desires and needs, but different cultural manifestations. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it up into two parts. Okay. Um, one, one piece really touches into culture and the other into desires and needs. Mm-hmm. And um, so an auntie once told me a story. She said, people who live by the river and fish have songs about fishing and eating fish and swimming in rivers. They have clothes that reflect the stories of the river and the fish. They might have hairstyles and dance styles that reflect um, that which they live around and that which sustains them. And that's what we call culture, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. People who live in the mountain in communication and deep intimacy with the large wooded tree may have songs about large wooded trees. So that's culture. Mm -hmm. The expression, the outer expression of of your inner values will be nuanced depending on where your people land. So that's culture. When it comes to desires and needs and notice in the story, you know, whether you live by the river or in the woods, you're still going to need to get some needs met. And you're still going to have want to fulfill some desires. For the most part, we can, I'll, I'll venture to say, I'll throw my cards on the table and say it's, it is a universal in the human experience. The, the feeling of a need and the feeling of a desire. It might, it might manifest at different gradients depending on who you are. So those are relatively unchanging the, the, especially the needs piece. How we go about meeting them will be determined by the culture within which we reside. And then if, I, if you move, let's say I move from West Coast, California to Barcelona, Spain, mm-hmm. maybe how I go about meeting my needs and desires will change. Chances are they will. So it's, it's really important for me. I feel a calling. I feel a pull in my soul to, um, to 
repeat, to, to always bring in this narrative about being human. Because what was central in the colonial project was the initiative to dehumanize. There is an entire um, uh, 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 bank of literature, justifications on why certain groups of people were not human. And so we're, we're seeding that reality back into our being, back into our body, the reality of being human, the fullness of it, the breath and the depth, um, being able to experience the full range of emotions as opposed to saying, oh, I'm a black woman. I can't feel anger. Mm. Right. Um, that's what the last thing I'll say about that is a personal meditation of my own that really came in this time of COVID, which I'm just taking it as a full year long retreat, sort mm-hmm. of. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. There's right nothing there. else to do. Nope. <laughs> but pause, meditate. Pause and reset. <laughs> you know, cook soup and you know, shit like that. So yep. Yep. um, but I have been doing a lot of inner child work because mm-hmm. uh, first of all, with the existential crisis around mortality that we're all swimming through, right? With COVID, um our inner children are yanked all the way up our limbic Mm -hmm. systems are hijacked with fear you know and uh our inner child is lit up and and the child space that that part of our human experience is where this logic gets seeded in the psyche it's where you inherit the project of racialization because you have to find out you have to discover what group you were born into and you discover it through all of the um, explicit and implicit messages you get, right? For example, one of the, um, I, I work with an art collective and I know we're coming down to 10, so I'll keep it short, but I work with an art. Okay. I work with an art collective here in Oakland, Oakland called house full of black women. And, um, one of the things that we've been, been sharing is around um, how, how do I exorcise these scapegoated projections that have landed on my body and my psyche? And specifically, one has to do with, um, for me personally, it has to do with hyperproduction. Mm. And I mean that as a large umbrella term. My, my sacred scholarship work, my academic work is on race-induced maternal stress. So I'm looking at racial disparities in birthing. And what I started to discover in that was like, why, why is this, why, you know, these numbers have been incredibly um, disparate for a long time. Um, So in my studies, I found the, uh, you start to uncover and unpackage how reproduction within Black women was central to the racial project. It was central to the development of capitalism, that there were breeding plantations designed specifically for producing more free labor, Mm -hmm. more humans. 
Um, many were on timetables. Many of the enslaved women purchased just for that reason. There's that hyperproduction in the form of forcing women to induce, uh, uh, to create more life, you know, forcing mm -hmm. uh, enslaved people to breed. And then there was also the hyperproduction in the field itself. Um, you could see uh, uh, a few decade period, you know, a three decade period when um, sales increased and the amount of, of uh, what do you call it? Harvest. Mm -hmm. Harvest mm -hmm. from each crop would increase. Mm -hmm. And it was because the amount of hours of work had been increased from eight hours a day to 15 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And it had been done using a strategy of shame. It had been done using a strategy of torture, like calling enslaved people lazy mm -hmm. and whipping them periodically in front of the, in, in a town square. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so at a, from this epigenetic landscape, yeah. we've inherited this idea of you got to work hard. You got to mm -hmm. just keep going. You have to normalize chronic stress as the, the, the way your body lives, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the decolonizing... How, I'm so curious. I'm just, I really appreciate this introspection. Like, how does that show up in you? How do you feel that when it comes up? Like, what do you, how do you deal with that when that comes through? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a, I'll, I'll sum it up really quickly. There was a situation where, um, you know, um, someone wanted some information, a couple quotes and, you know, some, some literature in a very short period of time. So they called in the morning with a sense of urgency. We needed you know, hella fast. Mm -hmm. And instead of sort of taking into account, oh, these are all the conditions that I'm working within. We have a short amount of time. It's been hard to connect with the collective because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe I can negotiate and, and you know, have the deadline be the next day, shoot for a morning deadline. Mm -hmm. But the default is let me fulfill their unreasonable request. Mm. That's mm -hmm. the default. That's the default, yep. It's like the reflex. Yeah. And so all of your energetic systems go into hyperdrive. They mm -hmm. go into fulfilling this. It really isn't that necessary. Mm -hmm. It, it right. isn't. And it was very simple to negotiate a morning deadline. Mm -hmm. Very easy. But at a somatic level, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At a muscle, at that memory level, at a neural pattern level, um, it is historical and mm -hmm. be, can become hysterical. Easily. I was just hearing that, yeah, like the <laughs> cells are encoded with threat response, essentially, and mm -hmm. urgency. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's it. amazing. So that you, so you're consciously noticing when your body goes into that conditioned epigenetic reflex, and you just do you. About, you said you were going to give us a meditation. Do you give yourself meditation? Do you, you know, what, is, what do you, because I'm curious when everyone's listening to this, whether you're white, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, whatever you identify with, when we yeah. feel our reflex coming up culturally, what do you, what do you do? That is such a great question. Um, so I would, I would love to offer you a um, very quick, just a couple minutes guided meditation. Mm, I'd um, love that. I would really be honored. And, you know, 
the words mindfulness and all of that I know are thrown around a lot and I'm going to um, lead into this embodiment practice by saying we learn how to breathe and, and center the self, not to maintain the status quo, but in order to transform it. Beautiful. We learn how to self-regulate in order to go into the places that are much more challenging and much more gravitas. So in these moments when I notice a default neural pattern at play, I take a couple of deep breaths in and exhale on that first one. And on the next deep breath in, as you exhale, notice a gold shining ball of light in the center of your head. And as you continue to breathe, I want you to imagine this gold ball expanding slightly. Maybe it takes up the fullness of your entire head. And as you continue to breathe, I want you to recognize this gold ball as the seat of your consciousness. The spark of life within you, the gifts, the challenges, the opportunities for learning and growth that you inherited when you decided to incarnate as a human being on the earth. If you feel so comfortable, you can imagine this gold ball as saying to you, I am complete. I am whole. I am enough. And now that you have calmed your system down from its relationship with urgency, you can ask yourself, what value do I want to add to this situation or this endeavor? What love can I pour? What do I want to bring to the place? acting from a seat of wholeness and not from my trauma. Take one more deep breath in. And you can open your eyes. I just want to say, um, as I was doing that, I just felt that um, for me, what's the truth? If you feel complete, 
there's just no way you could inflict harm on somebody. And so when you were telling me right before the meditation that we don't do this to maintain, you know, we do this to go deeper so we can transform. I see this, these simple, beautiful words and this, this meditation just being so applicable to anyone of any ethnicity, of any concept. Because when you speak to the spirit in such a neutral way, oh my goodness, I was just, I was feeling any desire to strive or prove just kind of falling on the wayside. Mm. And that's what decolonizing psyche is all about, right there. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Amber McZeal, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you, Luis. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, Amber is a real wise woman and someone I'm very happy to have had the privilege to speak with. I was thinking a lot after our discussion and I kept hearing in my mind decolonizing the psyche before there was race. And I just been meditating on the idea of before before race, what other ways were we already colonizing? What ideas were we having to separate ourselves from one another, from the earth, from our bodies? This decolonizing the psyche is, is pretty deep work when you get into it. Um, and it's very compassionate work. You know, uh, it doesn't have that, that same feeling that some other philosophical racist recovery groups may have where you have to walk in um, if you're white with a lot of guilt or if you're black with a lot of fear or shame. You know, Amber holds space really intelligently uh, and thoughtfully. And if you want to do more of her work or learn more about it, she actually has a Facebook group that's ongoing that's called Decolonizing the Psyche. So you can join that um, and she'll be coming out with more, more things through the years. But she, uh, in the, in the episode details, you'll see all the links that are relevant to what we spoke about. We referenced a book called My Grandmother's Hands. And I, I'm recording this right now on Thursday, September 24th, 6.26 a.m., shortly after the Brianna Taylor uh, case was closed without the the justice a lot of people were hoping for. And I reflect so deeply on Resma's book, My Grandmother's Hands, which is essentially uh, understanding somatic response through the lens of race and how like Amber and I spoke about, since our flight from Europe, there's been centuries of conditioning, concepts, campaigns. I look at some of those early silent films and you know the horror that these these this media and these kind of uh, campaigns were inflicting upon white and black and in between bodies 
would naturally create an othering. Where by this point in 2020, so many people have in their DNA a somatic fear and threat response to the other. And we see this in all the phobias, you know, like the xenophobia, let's say. We see it in sexism. We see it in homophobia. We see it in intersex and transgendered people. And right now, the part of our shadow that's being illuminated, just because it is and it's time or it wouldn't be happening, is racism. And on a somatic level, what does my body do with another color? Does it clench? Do I, do I breathe a little less or more shallow? Do I get nervous? Do I feel guilty? Do I feel angry? Do I feel neutral? Do I feel happy? Do I feel safe? Do I feel endangered? What does your body do? Really ask yourself that right now. Whether you're black or white or brown, you know, from what I've learned from this episode is race is constructed. So we can remove race from our minds and just go to your body. Just think, you know, when my body sees another body that's different from mine, what does it do? And I, it's such an important question because if you consider these stories and these events, these experiences of policemen killing mostly innocent people, particularly black people, we start to wonder why are black people such a threat? And if you read Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, he really eloquently, poignantly, and simply lays out how our bodies became conditioned to be so afraid of the other. And the reason why we want to do this work on a somatic level is because consciously, it's really easy to say, I love all people. And the same people that I've worked with and that I speak with and I spend my time with who love all people also have murderous rage. That's something that we, we are born with if you have a body. <laughs> it's a primitive fight response in the animal body, which our bodies are animals. They're of the earth. Our consciousness is from somewhere else but we inhabit these bodies. And if we're not inhabiting these bodies with a sense of somatic awareness, there's this whole underworld of conditioning, of unconscious egoic thoughts, and epigenetic expressions from ancestral and intergenerational trauma. So, you know, three or four generations ago, where were your ancestors? What were they dealing with? What did they believe about other cultures? That's in your DNA. So these expressions that come out, let's say with police brutality, these are unconscious reflexes. 
you'll rarely see a police officer on trial that says, I really wanted to kill him or her. You'll hear them say, I don't know why I pulled the trigger. You'll hear them say, I was so afraid for my life. You'll hear them say, I just, I just shot. I didn't even think about it. That's the body. So the, the, the best justice we have right now is to go inside yourselves and just ask yourself, where do I other? And where does my body respond to the other? And we want to try to start unothering, which really means finding where I have threat response with certain people or things and finding safety in those. And that's, that's my expertise. That's the work that I do. That's the work that Amber McSeal does. That's the work that Resma Menachem does. My colleague and friend, Corrine Bell, she does an amazing study group with my grandmother's hands, which helps you explore these really unconscious programmings that truly are innocent because they're not your beliefs and you don't consciously uphold them, but they're in your bones. And when you release them and you come to terms with them and you give them some compassion and they can move out, then you don't pass them on to the next generation, which is so magical. If you want to join her group, you can go to um, www.rootedandembodied.com. And again, this is going to be in the episode details. You can, you can scroll down and take a look. Her name's Kareen Bell. It's waitlisted right now, as it should be, because it's amazing. And there's three groups based on your ethnicity or how you identify. You join the group that feels most comfortable for you. And you take a year to really read this book slowly, integrate it. You work with a little triad. And you, you do this beautiful ancestral healing of any kind of unconscious racial bias your body might be holding. I can tell you, for somebody who, like me, is like 40%, I don't know, rather 60% white, I'm 40% the other, 60% white based on ancestry. I never identified as white. I always clung to my ethnicity, Irish, French, Spanish, Puerto Rican. I clung to those. And that being said, there's some bias in my body, which has been enlightening and humbling. So check that that out and definitely take a look at Resma's book. You can go to resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com. He has a slew of podcasts that are incredible. If you just type his name in, Resma Menachem. And the book, My Grandmother's Hands on audiobook, or if you want to read it or download it, it's, it's, a, it's a read that the more people get this work, and eventually as it makes its way into prisons and police academies and doctor's offices and hospitals, beyond racism, people will learn how to deal with the charge in their bodies that cause them to do unconscious things that hurt and sometimes even kill. So this is not small work when I ask you to meditate on your body and see what's in there. 
your body is the world. You bring it to the world. You affect other people through it. And you affect yourself through it. And to quote one of the chapters in Resma's book, you know, you can't change the world until you change your own body. I thank you for bringing your mind here and your openness to listen this far. And for any of you who are in pain because of what's happening in your world or the world, just know that even in the most horrible circumstances, if you're still alive and you're still well, you're supposed to be. So let yourself root into your own resilience and your own well-being. And without guilt, just try to own that and hold that and work from that. Because from your own situation and your own vitality and your own reality, you'll do so many beautiful things for your world and, and many others. So as always, before you go, take a breath. <sighs> Feel your body. Notice your emotions. And take that awareness into your life. I want to thank you for sharing this space with me. For more information on my work or any events that I might be hosting, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. And you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Holistic Life Navigation. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.